The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Park Church. Our scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that one with you as a gift from Park Church. Again, we are in Exodus chapter 15. We're going to read the whole chapter. If you are using that pew Bible, we'll start on page 57. Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic and holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. 
There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Joel. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. I'm excited to be looking at Exodus 15 with all of you today. Before the sermon, I want to say a couple things. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the house. Let's give them a round of applause. I am personally very grateful for my mother and the ways, uh, first off, that she birthed me. Secondly, for the way she cared for me throughout my life. Um, I'm also continually amazed by my own wife and seeing her care for our kids. Uh, she's selflessly sacrificing, um, thoughtfully nurturing them. So um, I don't think she's here right now. Morgan, I love you. I'm grateful for you. Thank you for your work. On behalf of, on behalf of Park Church, staff and elders to all the mothers in the room, we love you. We are so grateful for you. You model a piece of who God is to us and to your kids that is beautiful, that's essential. Um, I wanna, don't want to take away from the celebration of this time, but I also want to acknowledge that while Mother's Day is a celebration for many, it's also a challenging day for many other people. Uh, for those who've lost their mothers, for mothers who've lost their kids, for those with estranged relationships with their mother or mothers with estranged relationships with their children, uh, for those whose mothers wounded them um, in ways that still affect them, for those struggling with fertility issues and desires unmet, um, these are all real. And today we want to rejoice with those who rejoice, so we want to say happy Mother's Day to the moms, and also we want to weep with those who weep. I know that you're not alone, and so uh, with that, let's just pray and ask God for eyes that are wide open uh, to his word and ultimately to him in his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask uh, today that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We want to see wonderful things in your word. We want to see you in your word. We want to know you more. We want to follow you. Um, and we need your spirit to do that for us. And so we ask you for your help. Would you open the eyes of our hearts today? Um, today, if we hear your voice, would we not harden our hearts, but rather would we soften our hearts to you? We want to be open up to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want all of us to picture for a moment what it would be like to live in a musicless world. A world without any songs. A world where everyone lacked the capacity to sing and even play music. No musical instruments. Imagine with me how this might play out in your mind. Imagine a bride walking down the aisle, but to complete silence. A sporting event without the singing, the cheering, the chants, the national anthem. Teaching the ABCs without a song to accompany it. A birthday party with a cake and candles, but no happy birthday song. Watching movies without the soundtrack. How many of you have seen the YouTube video where they took the soundtrack out of the Star Wars movie? It's one of the most awkward things you'll ever see. And you should totally check it out after you leave here. Um, this world just feels super weird to me. In fact, it almost feels wrong. 
And I think we feel this way because to be human is to sing. It doesn't matter if you have a good voice or if you don't. You won't find a culture on earth that doesn't sing about something or create music and musical instruments. In fact, if you want to learn about a culture or learn about a people, you listen to their songs. You discover how they see the world around them. Listen to the songs that they write and you will hear their heartbeats. Pay attention to their worldview. What do they believe about life, about themselves? Songs are ultimately anthropological statements. Songs reveal our humanity and our primal longings. They reveal us. Not only is singing human, but it's also Christian. Singing is Christian. There are over 400 mentions of singing in the Bible. 400. There are over 50 commands to sing. Five zero. The Bible doesn't make reference to vocal skill. It doesn't make reference to vocal prowess. Everyone is invited in from the tone deaf to the opera star. All of us are called and commanded and compelled to sing. I want to put up a quote from N.T. Wright. And he says this, Biblical faith is a singing faith. From Miriam's wild song of triumph on the shores of the Red Sea to the thunderous song of all creation at the triumph of the Lamb. Making music to the Lord is, in fact, almost as central and obvious a Christian act as the Eucharist or communion itself. We sing not just because we're human. We sing because it's an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. We sing as, an away, as a way of engaging with God himself. And so today we get to talk about singing. In fact, a particular song that we find in Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is a turning point for us in this book. It's a passageway that's leading us away from Egypt. And it's now shifting us on the journey through the wilderness towards Mount Sinai where, where the Israelites will receive the law of God. The song of Moses stands right in the middle of the book as a bridge of sorts between these two halves. And so our particular chapter that we're looking at today has two acts, two sections, two parts. Act one, we're calling the song. For obvious reasons, it's the majority of the chapter that we find in verses 1 through 21. In these verses, we find Israel's song that they write in response to God's crazy water miracle, parting of the Red Sea, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. Then there's Act 2. We're calling this the wilderness. It's found in verses 22 through 27, when they depart from the shores of the Red Sea, and they travel into the wilderness. And ironically, they have another water crisis. They can't seem to get away from them. Before we jump into chapter 15, I thought it would be helpful um, if I show you a map on the screen. So let's put up that map and uh, give you guys each a, gen a general geographical kind of understanding of where uh, Israel's coming from. Park Kids, 958, that's not the map. All right, here we go. Um, so in the top left, you'll see Egypt up there. You see Ramses and Pithom. They're not sure where they left Egypt, but basically you see those dotted lines where they move southeast. They're headed south. And they think they, they don't know exactly where they crossed the Red Sea either, but somewhere at some point they crossed the Red Sea there. And then they, they end up in Mara, question mark, and they head down south, southeast there to Elam, question mark, and then they keep heading south to Mount Sinai. And so that's the general trajectory of geographically where they're going. For me, that's helpful. Sometimes I read these, these names and these, these cities or places, and I'm like, I have no idea where they are, but whatever. So hopefully you have a better idea now. And so I'm going to keep our flow very simple today. Uh, in Act 1, I want to make one major point, um, and then I'm going to kind of elaborate a little bit more about this song of Moses and what it means for us today. And then in Act 2, I'm going to make two additional main points. So three main points, one in Act 1, two in Act 2. 
And so let's jump into Act 1, this song. Acts 15, 1 through 21 is the first song of worship that we find in the Bible. The first song of worship directed to God that we find in the Bible. It's known by many names. It's the song of Moses. It's a song of the sea or by the sea. It's known as the song of Moses and Miriam. This is one of three songs that Moses wrote in the Bible. So he wrote this one. He also wrote Psalm 90, which we'll be looking at in a month from now. Uh, as we go through the psalm series uh, throughout the summer. And then thirdly, he also wrote Deuteronomy 32, a song there. As I was studying this song, um, I came to realize how essential this particular song that we're looking at is to every other song found in Scripture. Um, This song really stands as an archetype of all songs of Scripture. In many ways, it teaches us what Christian worship songs should be marked by. I think for us to understand the beauty and the significance of this song, we need to be reminded of the intensity of what Israel had just walked through. Israel had been enslaved for how many years? 400 years. It's a really, really long time. And Israel, what do they do while they're being enslaved? They begin to cry out to God, say, God, save us. God, save us. God, save us. And what does he do? He raises up Moses. He takes him out to the wilderness. Then he takes him back to Egypt. Along come the plagues, along come the Passover. The people of Israel are miraculously set free from Egypt, and then they land in front of the Red Sea. And what's happening? Pharaoh is tracking them down. He's got a bunch of soldiers, angry ones at that, all in chariots. He's, it's, a, it's this massive nation, the superpower of the day, tracking them down for retribution, vengeance, and ultimately eventual enslavement again. It wouldn't feel awesome if I were in their shoes wouldn't be like, yes. It's like, man, what in the world is happening? I can't even believe what's going on right now. We can't go anywhere. We're going to be taken out. And what happens? We find God not silent. The people of God are silent. And God does what? He fights on behalf of his people. He made a way through the Red Sea when there wasn't a way. In this miraculous event, not only was Israel rescued, but their enemies were destroyed. One event, they're rescued. God's enemies are destroyed. At the beginning of chapter 14, Israel started as runaway slaves on the western shores of the Red Sea. By the end of chapter 14, they stand on the eastern shores as redeemed, delivered, and the freed people of God. The rescue was complete. It was finished. And that's what had just happened to these people. That's when we land at at, at chapter 15. We find ourselves here on these eastern shores of the Red Sea with the Israelites the shores of salvation. I can only imagine they're pinching themselves. They're saying, wait, are we dreaming? What is happening right now? They're awestruck. They're dumbfounded. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to act. They don't know what to do. So what do they do? They sing. That's right. They sing. And this leads us to our first point in Act 1, our major point, and it's this. A song is birthed on the shores of salvation. A song is birthed on the shores of salvation, on the shores of Red Sea. Ligon Duncan says, this song is a song sung by the redeemed to the redeemer about the redemption. This is a song sung by the redeemed to the redeemer about the redemption. We know from the Bible that there was a greater exodus. The exodus that we read here wasn't the only exodus, right? There was a greater exodus led by Jesus himself. He walked through the waters of death for us, passed into new life, and through faith, he invites all of us to join him that we might find freedom. Just as a song was birthed for Israel on the shores of the Red Sea, so our songs are birthed 
on the shores of salvation and with our new birth. And so uh, I'm going to act as a tour guide of source as we walk through this song together. I think if we grasp this song, it will be incredibly shaping for us as a people, how we approach singing and how we approach our time together. And so I'm going to make seven observations about this song and elaborate about how they help us today in Denver engage with God. So the first point is this. This song is responsive. The song is responsive. Look with me at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Verse 1 begins with then. After what? After what are we talking about? After God's work of deliverance. Once God saved them, they sang. A saved people are a singing people. A saved people sing to God. Christian worship doesn't start with man, but rather it starts with God. The Bible often shows us rhythms of revelation and response. God reveals and man responds. God reveals and man worships him. This is how the rhythms work. This song is responsive. This is precisely why at Park Church, our call to worship always starts with Scripture. It stands as a reminder that God is the initiator. He loved us first. It's His song sung over us that sparks a song inside of us. He has the first word. When we gather together on Sundays, it's a major way that we engage with God. We slow down. We slow down. And we remember that God is moving towards us. God is always moving towards us before we could move towards him. Practically, this means we don't have to fake our way into worship. We don't have to fake our way into a feeling. We simply need to ask God for fresh eyes to see all that he's done for us, and in turn, worship will rise naturally. If your song is feeling weak, then ask God to see again. As your eyes grow wider to see, so the intensity of your song will grow. Singing is responding. If you've been rescued, you have a song to sing. Not only is this song responsive, but this song is corporate and it's personal. It's corporate and personal. While faith is personal, it's also corporate. Who sang the song? Look at me in verse 1. Then Moses and who? The people of Israel. We should never privatize our spirituality. We live in Denver. It's a hyper-individualized culture where we are our own bosses We take off from work to go to the mountains when we want, and we change our plans when something better or more appealing comes along. It's here that we're reminded that we're not merely saved individuals, but we are a saved people. We are a saved people. It's here that we remember that we don't belong to ourselves. We don't belong to our own whims. We belong to God, and we belong to His body, the church. Gathering with others is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian because that's part of who we are. We generally say at the end of our worship time, God not only reconciles us to God, but who does he reconcile us to? To each other. We are made into a family. That's why we say that every week. It's not to make the introverts angry, right? (laughs) We don't do that. We are a church. That's why we always function in that, right? We try to teach our people, you are a part of something larger than yourself. Singing together is a beautiful expression of that spiritual reality, that spiritual unity. Um, On NPR, uh, they were talking about uh, a Swedish study that they did that, that basically did research on a choir. They did some tests on a choir while they were singing together, and they discovered something amazing that happened while people sang together. And it's this, that as the choir began to sing together, their hearts begin to synchronize and beat together at the same time. 
it's insane. That's crazy. I was like, wait, what? how does that even happen, right? And basically, it's because based on patterns of breathing, they all sing together. They are exhaling and inhaling at the same time. And so their hearts begin to adjust. Singing unites us not just musically and spiritually, but also physically. That, that, that physicality that changes and is affected, it also happens in a spiritual level when we gather together to sing. I want to be honest with you guys. One of my favorite things about this church is how you sing. It's how you sing. We are a singing people. It's amazing to be any part, in any part of this building just hearing people sing, just belting it out. And I pray that that never, ever changes. And this song is not just corporate, but it's also highly personal. One of the main critiques of the modern uh, worship movement is by those saying that there's too much of ourselves in songs being written today. Too many I and me statements in these songs. And while I understand the concern, even a brief look at this song and the Psalms, for that matter, show us that we shouldn't run away from using personal language with God. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 in the song. What does Moses say? And the people of God, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. He keeps going. The Lord is who? My strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. There's a sense of ownership here. This is my God. It's not just ours. He is my God. This song is personal. It's personal. Every time you worship, you should always bring the real you to the table, the real you with joys, with hurts, with abuses, with stories. Let your heart sing to God. So this song is corporate and personal. It is also about God and to God. This song is about God and to God. We find that this song invites us to both sing about God. We see that in verses 1 through 5. And also invites us to sing to God, verses 6 through 18. We don't merely sing horizontally about God to one another, but we also sing vertically, vertically to God. Singing about God helps us remember truths we may have forgotten about Him. Truths we may have forgotten about Him. Singing to God reminds us that we're actually cultivating intimacy and communion with the living God. It's great to hear a love song at a concert, but it's a whole other thing to see one person singing their love song to their loved one's eyes. It's a whole different thing. And that's what we do when we gather on Sundays. We sing to our God. Don't just come in here and be like, yes, yes, in Christ alone. You know, but as we sing, let the eyes of your hearts rise to the throne of God and say, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Don't just sing about God. Sing to God. From a, a random, this is a great opportunity for us to teach a little bit about why we do what we do here at Park. Um, we have two categories for songs here that we try to incorporate both of these. And we call these songs of description and songs of devotion. Songs of, of description tend to be a little bit wordier songs, songs that are articulate and are precise and a little bit more verbose, often hymns land in this camp. And then we also try to sing songs of devotion, which are songs that are a little bit more simple, a little bit more intimate in their nature. Maybe Jesus, I love you. I love you. It's songs that you can sing with your eyes closed. You don't have to think a whole lot, but you can kind of just focus in and just meditate there and sit there, right? Well, which one is right? I think each of us have our leaning, but the truth is we need both of these in our diet. These songs of description should overflow into songs of devotion, and then these songs of devotion should want us to lead, lead us to sing more and more about God. They just flow one into one another. This song is about God, and it's to God. Well, not only is this song about those things, but it also is emotive and theological. The song is emotive and theological. Sadly, we don't see these words together very often. Emotion and theology. 
emotion and theology. Generally, churches pit these two against each other, and unfortunately, they choose one as over the other, but the truth is we need both of them. We need emotional engagement, and we need theological articulation. So let's look at emotion first. Why are parts of the Bible songs or poetry instead of prose? Have you thought about that? Why are parts of the Bible songs or poetry instead of prose? Why isn't the Bible's only genre narrative form, right? Let's just get all the information out there. Let's get it laid out there. Do we got it? Is it clear? Great, let's move on. That's not the way the Bible is written. It has a ton of genres in it, and two of those are poetry, right? And then also these songs, these hymns. Music and poetry help us activate parts of our hearts that might be slow to feel or might be asleep. I want to read a quote from Augustine about the role of music. And so let's put that up there on the screen. Augustine. All right, here we go. I am aware that our minds are more deeply moved to devotion by those holy words when they are sung and more ardently inflamed to piety than would be the case without singing. I realize that all the varied emotions of the human spirit respond in ways proper to themselves to a singing voice and a song which arouse them by appealing to some secret affinity. Isn't that good? None of us come in as unemotional creatures on a Sunday. None of us do. Perhaps many of us have learned to numb our feelings or ignore our feelings or compartmentalize our feelings, but emotions play a massive part in our discipleship as humans coming alive and music and singing helps this discipleship. This is why music, singing, and the arts are such an important part of our spiritual lives because they help us access some of those deeper places. Some call this below-the-line work. We need help to explore these parts of us. Some people get uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about my emotions. You have them. Steward them well. Let music and let poetry disciple your emotions. Songs help us cultivate emotionally healthy spirituality. Spirituality. Well, this song is not just emotional, it's also theological. It holds high his glorious triumph, the triumph of God, his victory. It proclaims weighty and beautiful truths about God and all that he's done. In our exploration of of emotions, it doesn't negate the need for good theology. That's true of who God is. Imagine if you want to throw a party for me to honor me, right? And we're like, you know, we're going to commission somebody to write a song for Joel just to honor Joel. But in the writing of that song, they get a bunch of facts about me wrong. How honoring would it be to me when that, song is, when that song is sung in my honor? Not very, right? I, I, I wouldn't feel known. And yet that's what happens often when we sing heresy during our times of worship, when we sing half-truths. We want theological truths and biblical truths to be proclaimed and declared in our songs. We want our songs to be rooted in the Bible. And that's why we do what we do. We want to say, God, is this song biblical? Is it true of who you've said you are in your word? If it's not, we don't want to sing it. This song reminds us that God's power that overthrows enemies and protects his people and guides them. It also reminds us that God is a warrior in verse 3, fighting on behalf of his people. He's a shepherd who's leading them in verse 13. He's a gardener planting them in a new home in verse 17. And he's a king who rules and reigns forever in verse 18, this is our God. This is who we sing to. We want our songs to reflect this truth of who God is. We want our songs to create feeling and good thinking. Don't believe the lie that theology eliminates intimacy. Rather, theology is meant to create it. 
Don't believe the lie that theology eliminates intimacy. Theology was meant to create it. All right, this song is, is emotive and theological. It's also narratival. It's a story. This song is great storytelling. It's, it's, it's so fun to read through this song and watch everything unfold and how God is portrayed, how, how Pharaoh and his men are, are portrayed, um, how, how it portrays God moving them into the promised land in this song. And so um, this song invites us to do thing, two things. It invites us to look backwards and it invites us to look forward. So in verses 1 through 13, we look back. It's, it's the victory behind them. It's the Red Sea event. We celebrate God's clear victory over Egypt and their gods. Then we're invited to look forward in verses 14 through 18 toward their upcoming journey to the promised land. And so particular peoples and regions are listed off in verses 14 through 18. We see them, uh, Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan. The same victory found in the past will be found again. God will faithfully lead people from one place to another and we can be confident in him. Israel wasn't going to encounter a couple of these places for another 40 years. 40 years. And yet they're singing about the victory of God 40 years before. They're saying, God, you are going to have victory. You're going to plant us there. This song situated the people of Israel in a story, in a narrative, right? One of the curses of our day is that no one really has stories undergirding them as to who they are and why they're alive. What's the point of life? Where do we find significance? What are we doing here? Good songs in the church should help us do precisely what this one does, to help us look back to our salvation, but also look forward in hope, knowing that he'll continue to be with us, to remember who God is, to remember who we are, and remember where we are going. We need to be constantly reminded and reoriented by the gospel story, the gospel narrative, because our hearts are being pulled and drawn by so many other false narratives, false stories, false songs. What are these false narratives? It's any narrative that'll teach you to find joy outside of God. That's a false narrative. That's a destructive story. It's a destructive song for you to sing. Social media plays a catchy tune and invites us to join in. Hey, sing with me. If you just travel enough, climb the most beautiful mountains, and go to the right restaurants and parties and breweries, you will be happy. You'll be happy to find the right person, the right job, the highest salary, quicker retirement, or having the perfect family that seems trouble-free. You'll be the happiest if you can get your kids to go to sleep at night, right? The church, yes. Can I get a witness? Yes. The church has its own versions. Just get your act together and do the right things as a moralist without regard to God. Control your own spiritual destiny. Look impressive to other people. Perform for them. Those things cannot satisfy us. Get your theology in line. Apart from God, theology is dead. Apart from God, theology will kill us. Pharisees were great theologians. They were going for it, yet their hearts didn't know him. The song of the sea keeps us looking back and looking forward. It situates us. It's good for our hearts to sing this song. It's good for our hearts to remind ourselves this, that ultimate and true joy is found in God alone. In the words of Kevin Twitt, worship is the restoration of sanity. Worship is the restoration of sanity. What do you mean, Joel? When we come in on Sundays, each of us are believing insane things about God, about ourselves, and who we are. And it's this song of the sea, the song of redemption, the song of salvation that resituates us and reorients us and restores us. It hits the reset button for us. We need God's story 
and his song to do that in our hearts. All right, the song is not just narratival or a story. It's also physical. The party didn't end with a song, but it keeps building like any good party, right? In verses 20 and 21, we find Miriam and the women of Israel just getting after it. What are they doing? Miriam has a tambourine. It's an instrument of joy and celebration. Think of like Salvation Army tambourine that functions like a hand drum as well. And she's getting after it, right? I want to tell a quick tambourine story. So I was, I was on the parking duty at my last church or a couple churches ago in California. So I was like, I had like the big finger and I was like directing people with the vest. So I was like directing people. And then one of the cars that pulled through was blasting like the latest like Christian worship song. They're just going for it. And they pulled in and they parked and they stayed there for like 10 minutes just jamming out in their car. I'm like, they're just getting their hearts juiced up and ready for the service, right? And then this lady with a long flowing dress, she comes out towards me. She comes up to me. She's like, do y'all let people bring their Bibles into church? I was like, yes, we definitely encourage you to bring your Bible to church. And she's like, do y'all bring tambourines into church? I said, well, so we've had some issues where some people brought tambourines and there's some slap back. It throws the band off and then everybody's off. So we'd actually ask that you not bring tambourine into church, you know. And she's like, in the church where I'm from, we don't put God in a box. And then I told her, I was like, listen, we're not asking you to put a God in a box. We're just asking you to put your tambourine in the box. <laughs> and then she told me, like, dead serious. This is not a joke. I felt like I was getting filmed somewhere. But, like, she was like, when I play the tambourine, I bring people to their knees. <laughs> I was like, ma'am, I totally believe you do. <laughs> I don't think Miriam was like this lady. I think, I think people were loving it and engaged. It doesn't stop with the tambourine, but it keeps going. What do they do next? Verse 20, then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and what? Dancing. Dancing. Dare we say that in church? Why don't we say that all together? Dancing. Right? This is an indictment, I think, for the Western church. I'm just going to say it. We feel really uncomfortable. Ironically, you're like pumped when the Nuggets are playing the Blazers. You're like, yeah! And you're going for it or you're cheering for the Broncos. You're like going for singing at the top of your lungs and dancing at your like favorite concerts. But when it comes to church, suddenly order is restored, right? You're, you're on top of things. I don't want to forget this, that God has made us humans with bodies. Just as emotions are part of our discipleship, so our bodies are part of this discipleship as well. Our understanding and approach to faith is largely cognitive. But the truth is this, that God saved the people of Israel and they sang. God delivered them and they danced. They danced. Just as Christian worship is expressed emotively, it's also expressed physically. We are holistic beings. And what happens with our hearts affects our bodies. What happens in our bodies affects our hearts. Does that make sense? What happens inside of us affects our external, right? And our externals affect our internal. There's a powerful interplay that many of us forget. And so I want to invite all of you, before I forget, May 30th, uh, we have an event called Song of Moses after this song. And we're going to be teaching on biblical postures of worship, physical postures of worship. And then we're going to give you space to explore those things. And so it sounds nerve-wracking for some of you, like, yep, I'm going to make another plan for that night. <laughs> Don't be here. Um, I think this is a massive way that God wants to grow us as a church. And so I want to encourage you and I even challenge you uh, to come and, and learn what God has to say about your body.
Um, last point on the song. This song is meditative. It's a short point. The song that Miriam sang was meditative. It wasn't long. It was a repeat of what Moses and the people of God had already sung, sung before. To sing to the Lord, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has overthrown into the sea. She picked a simple motif, and she wanted to help keep, keep people there in a posture of gratitude to help them celebrate and remember. Sometimes repetition and simplicity get a bad rap in the Western church as well. But simple repetition can and should have a role in our lives of worship. Obviously, this isn't mindless repetition, but rather intentional repeating and feasting on biblical truth. While Eastern meditation is an emptying of the mind, Christian meditation is a filling of the mind with biblical truth. For those who get frustrated when we repeat things or sit on things for a while, try to stay present in the songs when we're singing those things. Don't turn off. Rather, use them as an opportunity to say, man, maybe I need to slow down on this phrase. I need to meditate on this. Ask the Holy Spirit to meet you there. Those are some of our observations for the song in Acts, in Act 1. Um, now we're going to transition to Act 2. Uh, and I want to mention this. When I was preparing for this sermon, um, I had to ask this question. In verse 22, we transition to the wilderness. And I asked this question, what does the song have to do with the wilderness? What does the song have to do with the wilderness? If I'm honest, I was kind of bummed that I got verses 23 through 27. Because like, man, I'm like having this great sermon about a great fun song and dancing and tambourines. And then they go into the wilderness. Right? It felt like a disruption of the joy and the ecstasy. It felt like a killjoy. And what I realized as I studied it, it actually has everything to do with the song. The wilderness has everything to do with the song. It was actually a setup and preparation for the wilderness. Without verses 22 through 27, I think we'd actually have a false understanding of the song. We have a false understanding of it. So let's look at verse 22 together and, what, and find out what happens right after the song. 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the sea, and they went to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Sounds like a good trip. Have you guys ever taken road trip without liquid? Kids are like, oh, on water, on water, I'm pulling over. We're going to find it, right? Well, they couldn't pull over. There was no water, and they're in the wilderness. They're not in like an air-conditioned minivan. This is where it starts getting real. As much as they wanted to stay on those happy shores of salvation, singing, celebrating, dancing, playing tambourines, God didn't let them stay there, did he? God had saved them, but he was beginning to sanctify them. The reality was though they were physically free from Egypt, there was still plenty of Egypt that was enslaving them on the inside. I want to read a, a quote from Clement of Rome. He was an early church father. After this Red Sea crossing, Moses by the command of God, whose providence is overall, led out the people of Hebrews into the wilderness that he might root out the evils which had clung to them by a long continued familiarity with the customs of the Egyptians. God was intending to lead them into the wilderness to purge Egypt out of them to train them, to test them, to discipline them as a loving father who wanted to see them actually free and whole again. We'll actually find Israel walking through three trials and testings of sort. Miguel's going to be preaching on the next two trials. But we're going to be looking at this first trial. We're told that as they set out from the Red Sea and they immediately go into the wilderness of Shur, I can only picture this song of Moses just on their lips. They're just pumped. They're like, yes, this is good. This is good. They're singing. 
All of a sudden, the hours go by, no water, no water. Day one, day two, day three. What's going on in their hearts? They don't have water. They're searching for water, but they can't find it. Sometimes we can look at these stories and be like, how can these Israelites be so quick to forget? You weren't in the wilderness without water. I would be grumbling along with them. I would be complaining. I'm like, where is the water? I thought you were saving us, God. What happens in verse 23? Let's read that. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So we, we stumble into some really good news. What do they find? What's the bad news? It's bitter. So they're like, yes, you know. It's like imagine being like so thirsty, three days of no water. And then the water that you find is bitter. It sounds like a big, fat, cruel joke, doesn't it? I would be so angry at that point. I would be so upset. Could you imagine being an Israelite and the confusion that you feel around water? The water of the Nile turned to blood. The water of the Red Sea parted for them. The water couldn't be found in the wilderness, and the water of Mara was bitter and undrinkable. And it's here as, as they face these bitter waters that they have some decisions to make. Heat is being applied to their lives. It was forcing some real questions. What's the deal? Why is this happening? Who do we trust? We just saw a whole ocean part a couple days ago, but now we can't even find a cup of water to drink. We learned a song about a God who's powerful and loving, but that sure doesn't seem to be the case right now. In our first point of Act 1, we learned that a song was birthed on the shores of salvation. Now this leads us to the second point. The song that we learned on the shores of salvation is quickly questioned, lost, and forgotten in the wilderness. The song that we learn on the shores of salvation is quickly questioned, lost, and forgotten in the wilderness. I want to say this to all of you, and you probably know it, but if you don't, life is crazy. Life is crazy. We're a fairly young church, and Denver is a pretty young city, but the longer you live, the more you realize that life often doesn't go as we think it should. Between job situations, health issues, financial crises, family drama, or just dissatisfaction with the way things are going in general, things can get rough. This was their opportunity to cultivate the song of the sea while standing in the wilderness. To let the song inform their reality instead of letting their reality inform the song and rewrite the song. But sadly, instead of giving themselves to the song of Moses, they they gave themselves to a different song. What did they give themselves to? Let's read about it. Verse 24. And the people did what? Grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? What shall we drink? So they sang not the song of Moses, but a song of grumbling and a song of complaint. Moses, what have you done to us? Why have you brought us here? This leads us to our third and final point. The song of the sea can be found and sung and ground us while we are still in the wilderness. The song of the sea can be found and sung and ground us while we are still in the wilderness. While the people quickly forgot the song in the absence of water, Moses didn't. How do we know? Well, just look at his actions. When someone grumbles against you, what's a typical response? My kids are grumbling. I am angry back. I am negative back. I backlash. There's sadness for some. There are many options of things, that, ways that Moses could have responded. But read verse 25 with me. How does he respond? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Became sweet. 
God was leading Moses. Moses cried out for wisdom, for direction, for leading. Ultimately, he's relying on the truths of the song at the sea because he knew God had promised to lead them through in his steadfast love and guide them by his strength. He was relying on Exodus 15, 16. He said, God, you said you'd lead us with your steadfast love. You said you'd guide us. We need your help right now. Israel took up the song of grumbling while Moses took up the song of the sea and cried out to God for a fresh experience of those realities that he sang about. What came from this? The God who was faithful three days prior was faithful again. He was faithful again. We find God providing in two ways. The first is, uh, is through another water miracle of sorts. God told Moses to throw a log into the waters in order to make these bitter waters sweet. Sure enough, God did, and they could drink. It's almost a reverse of the first plague where Moses struck the uh, Nile River with his staff and it turned the water into blood. Here Moses takes a log, a piece of wood, and he throws it into this water and it turns it the bitter water, and makes it into sweet water. This is our God. He is a healer. He may not heal in our desired time frame, yet that is still who he is. He is making all things new. And then not only did God provide miraculously, but he also provided providentially. We see that as he leads them down to Elam, he gives them this mini covenant, almost a precursor to Mount Sinai, where he's calling them to obedience, to faithfulness. And then he leads them to Elam, where they find 12 streams of water and these 70 palm trees. It's almost a picture of a restored Eden and a preview of the promised land and what life will be like under God's flourishing. Truth stands in the wilderness as difficulty comes, we're all presented with a choice. Do we still sing the song of Moses or do we find ourselves singing another song? Do we find ourselves believing something else? Maybe it's a song of cynicism. It might be a song of pleasure and something other than God. Maybe it's a song of abandonment. It might be a song of distraction. We might find ourselves rejecting the song we learned on the shores of the Red Sea because it just feels incongruent. Can I urge you today, the song that was birthed on the shores is to be cultivated in the wilderness. The song birthed on the shores is to be cultivated in the wilderness. Let that song both ground you and give you wings. Fight for it. There is a battle for your song. And I want to look at all of you and tell you this. There is a battle for your song. There's a battle for my song. What song will you sing? There's a cosmic war for our song. Sing the song of the sea in the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for today. Uh, we thank you that you birth the song in us and that you continue to teach us to sing that song in the wilderness. I pray that you would help us do that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.